We'll be here at the end of the service that you can chat to them again more there as well. There was a little bit of confusion in Samuel's instructions about hometown. I was, I was asked, did it mean where you were born or does it mean subway, suburb you currently live? Um, some people gravitated over directions. We've got a friend staying with us at the moment who's born in Germany, is Irish, and is currently working um, and living down in Victoria, who we met through uh, the Christian camp where we used to work. Her name's Sonia, for the record, and she'll think that is the peak of maturity that I pronounce it that way because I used to pronounce it otherwise to annoy her. <laughs> I'm growing up eventually... Once you get past 40, there's slight progress in growing up. Okay, let us um, open up in prayer so we approach God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we gather and look at your word that uh, we are engaging with the living God who is its author and who works through it to change lives. Lord, we don't just want to uh, have a lecture or a teaching session. Lord, we want to hear your voice to us. We want to hear your voice to us, not just so that we feel nice and all tingly, but Lord, that we might see something of the glory of God, that we might see something of of who you are in a way that captures our, our affections and changes the way in which we live and respond to you and to one another. Lord, we're told that your word is given to us, that we and is useful and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. And we pray that your word might achieve those purposes this morning in our lives. Uh, Lord, be with us. Guide us by your spirit. Teach us, convict us. And Lord, grant us the the enabling to, to walk in response to what you challenge us on this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was a teenager... There was one place I could think there's no worse place that I would want to be. You know where that place was? Church. Or anything Christian-y. That was the one place of anywhere I wanted to be, that was the last place I could want to be. Now you might think that's a pretty weird interaction. Here you are, pastor of church, and saying when you're younger, the last thing you want to do was be involved in a church or do anything Christian. No, but I still went along to church every single week. It kept mum and dad happy. Um, I could manage to sit through the... It was a routine. I knew how it worked, knew what to expect. I could switch off and do whatever I liked. And I had two weekends every year when I was given reprieve. The rugby league grand final, that was back in the day when it was like a whole Sunday event starting from the early morning. Even the the third grade stuff would even get on TV. And the Bathurst car race. They were my two exemptions. And even when I lost interest in rugby league, I still milked that for all it was worth. And you start to wonder, how does someone become a Christian when the thing that they loathed most was being in the presence of Christians? I mean, how are you going to come to salvation if the last thing you want to do is be in the presence of where that's being proclaimed? Now, I'm not going to tell you the... It's not Steve's testimony time, but quick summary in terms of answering that question was that there was a Bible school in our town. It was like a, a one-year residential work, work your way through the Bible sort of thing. And one of their strategies was that they would place each of the students in local local churches in the area so that they were involved in various churches and involved in the ministries of those churches. And I was there at my parents' church doing the right thing, keeping everyone happy, ticking the boxes. And there was a guy who got sent to our church 
who was only a very new convert. He was an American guy and someone had paid for him to come over and do a year's study at this Bible school. Can you imagine that? You've just come from a very different background. You've just become a Christian and within months you find yourself surrounded by Christians and doing all sorts of Christian-y stuff that's new and foreign to you. And so we had a bit of a connection because we had similar background, interest in music and all sorts of things. And he was feeling a bit on the outer there. It was a new setting for him. And he says, Steve, we do this thing on Sunday night. Uh, do you want to come along? And my thoughts was, man, I've just done one Christian thing in this day. I'm not going to do two of them. I mean, I like the guy, but can't we do something different? And I think he wanted some someone there who sort of understood where he, where he was at, or at least certainly where his background was at. And and so we ended up striking an agreement that if we went out drinking first, that, that I would come along. Now, it's not the greatest motive, but that, that was my motive. And as it turns out, I ended up going along quite regularly to these things with a whole series of bad motives. You know, it's not uncommon that a guy goes to do things because there's a girl there that they like. That became yet another one of those motives. But the long story short was, in the environment that I dreaded and hated the most, the thing that I thought that I most wanted to be away from was the environment where the gospel penetrated, changed my life, the same gospel I'd heard every single day growing up, but in the setting that I thought was the worst place, the most dangerous place to be, the most useless place to be, was the place where the biggest thing that ever has happened in my life took place. Now last week we began starting to look through the book of Exodus, a book that I've described as being like the gospel of the Old Testament. Now, its central event and defining moment is when God takes the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, in his grace, to deliver them and to make for himself a people for himself. But these events are not just of interest of ancient Israelites. We saw that in in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, reflecting on the events of the Exodus, says, these things were written for our instruction. Last week we looked through the entirety of of chapter 1 and we saw that in Genesis there's a natural progression that leads into Exodus. Like in Genesis 46 it talks about all the descendants from Jacob who came into Egypt numbering 70 and that begins the same way in Exodus chapter 1. continues that story speaking of the, the 70 who came into Egypt. But then it also transitions to a time when all of Jacob's descendants have died, Joseph has died, And a new king comes to power who does not know Joseph. Because the background was Joseph had come in initially as a slave into Egypt and he becomes, because he's able to interpret the king's dreams, he becomes the prince of Egypt. And so during his time, he was someone as an insider had motive and means to be a blessing to his own people. But now there was a king in charge, a pharaoh, who had no interest in the people of Israel and who did not know or have anything to do with Joseph. But one thing that we saw, during that time, God was faithful to his promises. We looked at some of the promises in Genesis that were given to Abraham, that, you know, that they, would, they would enter into a land, that his offspring would be multitude as the stars of the sky, that they would ma- he would make of them a great nation. And we see, even though they're not in the land, that God is causing them to grow and be fruitful. 
So much so that the Pharaoh was kind of scared. Like he was concerned that they were being so fruitful in the land. His concern was, these guys are going to raise up, be so strong and mighty in number. Should there be a time of war, these guys have got no reason to be loyal to us. They might join our enemies and fight against us. So in a sort of a moment of paranoia, he makes plans to try and hinder their growth so that they might not be a mighty nation, so they cannot establish an army and to secure his own national security. Now, his first plan was just to make them work hard, make them build cities, things to do that. But the response was, it says in the passages, they continued to multiply and be fruitful, and they grew and strengthened in numbers. So he stepped it up a notch and make them ruthlessly work as slaves. And again, the people multiplied, they were fruitful and they were strengthened. So then he decided, no more messing around. He goes to the Hebrew midwives and says, if any male child is born, I want you to kill them. If they're a girl, they may live. The concern about the male being they could be raised up to form an army. But what we saw is the midwives refused to do what the king had asked them. It says, the midwives feared God. Even though there was a risk to their own lives by denying the requests and the commands of the king, they said, I fear God. I know who my God is. I stand upon who my God is. He said we are called to be fruitful and to multiply. He has promised all these things for us. I'm going to stand upon that. I don't care what the king has said. Now, Pharaoh takes that little step further, realizing he's not going to achieve it that way. So he turns to his own people and says, any male child born to the Hebrews, throw them into the river Nile that they might die. Every step along the way, he's doing something to try and hinder the plans and promises of God. But everything he throws at it, God and his purposes continue to flourish. And we need to be reminded of that, that our God is the God who is above all rule and authority. The plans of man do not stand in the way of the plans of God. God had promised they'd be a great nation. He had promised they'd have offsprings as many as the stars of the sky, that they would multiply. Even the powerful king of Egypt had nothing on the midwives, had nothing on the, the almighty God who they placed their trust within. But during that process, we, we were challenged, how do we perceive our circumstances? Now, I, try, I encourage everyone to kind of put themselves in that situation. If you were there, how would you reflect upon your time? And it would be very easy if you were the more negative way inclined to think, where's God? Here we are, this isn't the promised land. We're here serving underneath a foreign king. He's treating us cruelly like slaves. Where is God? Does God love me if this is going on? That's one way you could look at it. But what I was encouraging us is that even in the midst of all of that hardship, and the Bible never promises that because we are God's people, that life is going to be cruisy, there's never going to be anything difficult. We do have a confidence that we can stand upon who he is and his promises. But the the challenge we had was to, in there, there was God's blessings. They were abounding. He was looking after them. He was protecting them. His promises were still coming to fruition as they were being fruitful and they multiplied. And we challenged each other to look in the middle of our messy life situations for God's blessings and for God's promises actually taking place that so often we are so preoccupied by the negative that we sometimes miss them. 
But not only was I encouraging us to see and give him thanks for those things, but I was encouraging us to do so for one another. Because sometimes we are so buried down in the, the things that happen in life that we can't see them for ourselves and sometimes we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us to see those things. So if you missed last week, you've now just got a world's quicker summary of that. So while the king was set on destroying all of the Hebrew males, chapter 2 begins with the birth of a Hebrew male son. Now once again, if you weren't familiar with the story of where it was going, whether you're inclined to think more negatively or positively would change the way you look at it. Like if you're inclined to think more negatively and you didn't know what the outcome was, you think, oh no, poor kid, unfortunate child, born during a time when the king has commanded that all male Hebrew kids are to be killed. Or you might even take it that step further and say, how irresponsible are those parents having children during a time when it was commanded that male children would be killed? Knowing that 50% chance was if you have a child, it's going to be male. Or the positive way you could look at it and think is, I have seen how God has been at work in the life of his people in chapter 1. How against all of the odds and everything that the king has thrown at it, God has protected and preserved his people. How is God going to provide his deliverance on this occasion? You could even say that even Moses' parents' willingness to have children, knowing there's a 50% chance it's going to be a bloke, is an act of faith, knowing that their God can protect and can provide. Now verse 1 introduces the, the background saying that they are descendant of Levi. Now, at the time of the birth, that probably didn't mean a great deal of time. But when Moses is writing it, and when the first people are reading these things, they would make that natural connection between this lineage from Levi that these was the tribe from whom the priests were to come from. And we see uh, Moses being put forward in, in terms of his priestly role, as we see later on in, in the role which he had. Now, he exemplifies that role of a priest as the one who brings down the law to the people, who mediates between God and men. And much later on, even as the the writings of Moses speak about how God promised there would be another prophet like Moses who would be raised up, uh, speaking of Jesus Christ. But as this child was born, his mother, who in this passage isn't named, but from other texts we know her name is Jochebed, saw this was a fine child and hid him for three months. So regardless of the fact that the the royal command was kill it, pivot in the Nile, she hid him for three months because it was a fine child. Now how we should understand fine child, it's not to look down and think, oh, what a cute little kid. Because let's face it, parents have ugly kids and they go, oh, what a cute little kid. And some of us are are nice enough not to tell them that their kid's actually ugly. but, But it's not a case of, case of, oh, if it wasn't a good-looking kid, I'd piff it in the Nile. I think we should understand it more in the sense of that she was so desirous, thought it was so precious, this child. I don't know whether she had some insight in terms of God, in terms of what his future would be, or if it was just a natural attachment that he wanted to protect and looked after this kid for three months. How do you hide a kid for three months? I know they sleep a lot during that early time, but they make a bit of noise, don't they? Some more so than others. But imagine 
What do you do? Three months has passed. You come to a point and you conclude with yourself, I cannot hire this child anymore. Now in that three months, you have bonded deeply with this child. You've nurtured, you've fed, you've looked after it. And you think, I can't hide this child anymore. And I know the royal command is this child has to die. What do you do? Your precious child, made in the image of God. And the king says, it needs to be die. Well, what does she do? So she makes a basket made out of papyrus reeds, tar and pitch to it so it's waterproof, and places it where? In the Nile. Places this child in a basket in the place designated by the king where Israelite kids are to die. Can you imagine being that mother? Could you imagine having a child that you have bonded with and placing them in the very location destined for it to be for their death? So we're told that the sister looks on. Again, we know through from other passages, uh, this was Miriam. That's her name. Probably a very young girl. At, at, at highest, 10 years old, says that she's watching on. Now, we don't know if that's her initiative or if her mum said, keep an eye, keep an eye on the kid. We don't tell those sort of details. But we can presume from the wording it says, to see what happens, that she's in for the long haul. Uh, depending on the time frame it takes until this child is discovered, who knows? Maybe waits till cries and takes it back to mum. Who knows what goes on in that sense? One thing we do know is the mother trusts God enough that this child whom God has graciously given to her and has sustained him for three months, she can trust him to God even in the setting of the place that was designed to be for the death of Israelite children. Now, I'm not sure how much time passes until Miriam gets to see what actually happens to her brother. Now, remember, Moses in a basket on the Nile. The place where Pharaoh had said, kill the Israelite kids. Who would be the last person you would want to see anywhere near your child or near your brother? Anyone to do with Pharaoh, wouldn't it? Yet exactly that's who comes on the scene. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it. Now, let's forget about the fact we know where where this is going. Imagine being Miriam watching this. The child is there now in the hands of the family of the Pharaoh who has said this child needs to be drowned in this river where they are. You'd be thinking, can things even get any worse than this? There's no possible worse scenario than one of Pharaoh's own household having this child in its hands. This is where it's helpful to recall chapter 1. There are a lot of situations in chapter 1 where you think, can things get any worse? The Pharaoh has said to the midwives, kill male children. Yet we've seen how God sustained, how God has provided, how God has saved. Now, there's an obvious difference back in chapter 1. The Hebrew midwives had motive. They had good reason why they would want to protect their own people. 
But now this is in the hands of Pharaoh's own daughter. Now it turns out to be a little bit of coincidence. There was no chatting with Samuel about this, but in his prayer he spoke about the way in which in, in um, Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 21.1 we're told the heart of the kings are like streams of water in the hands of our God and he directs them wherever he, wherever he will. Even the most powerful men in this world are just like a stream of water that God can just direct wherever he will. Not only can God do that in the life of a king, he can also direct the daughter of the king's heart. So much so it says that when she opened the basket, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So here's Pharaoh's own family. Under the instruction of her father, this child needs to die. It's not that she doesn't know that this is a Hebrew child. She blatantly says, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Whether it's facial characteristics or whether it's circumcision, whatever it is, she knows this is one of the Hebrew children. She knows what is commanded, this child needs to be drowned. Yet her natural response, as she sees this crying child, is she has pity upon him. Now, who knows how much Miriam's seen or heard. She's obviously seen that um, that Pharaoh's daughter has this child. Whether or not she's seen that compassion or not, she rushes over. And she's got to act quickly. But more than just acting quickly, she's a genius. Sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, she's probably seen the extent to which Pharaoh's daughters had compassion upon this child, so she thinks it's safe to approach. But at the same time, she'd be very well aware that Pharaoh's daughter can't just go home with a Hebrew male child and everything's sweet and no one will notice. And Miriam just sort of seems to conveniently pop up. Oh, you you want a hand with that? Maybe maybe I could get one of the Hebrew women to look after it. Maybe like his mum? I've got one in mind. And without any hesitation, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't say, you know, I really shouldn't know. Maybe I should report this or do something about it. Or maybe just let me go and ask my dad. Without any hesitation, she says, go. She says, go get someone. Now, Miriam knows exactly what she's going to do. She's not going back and putting placards up around sign. Any mums who might want to look after this child? She goes back to Moses' mother, Jochebed, and says, can you look after this child? Can you imagine what's going through her poor head? Here she was. She's given birth to a son. She's dealt with the difficult issue that she's given birth to a son who's supposed to be killed. She's managed to hide it for three months. She gets to a point where she's like, I can't do this any longer. She leaves him in the hands of God, trusts him by putting him in a basket. And then through the providential work of God, God has so worked in Pharaoh's daughter's heart that she has compassion upon him and now is even willing to give this child back to his rightful mother. And it goes even further than that. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So now not only has she got her own son back, she's got her own son back with the full blessing of Pharaoh's household. 
and not only that, with income support from Pharaoh's household. That's a pretty sweet deal. Might start putting our kids in baskets. No, not really. (laughs) Throw our cans. It's all right. We're going to do it. You think God's got his hand in this? You know, you could say, oh, what a coincidence. Oh, that worked out really well. God is working in and amongst. Sometimes you don't see it. But God is very clearly working the situation. Now, it's worth noting, the first five books of the Bible, all written by Moses, 16 times he uses the expression back in verse 2, speaking about a woman who gave birth. Every single time it's announcing the birth of someone significant who has a big part in the plan of God. And here in Exodus chapter 2 is the last of those times as it's coming to a climax that this boy born in the, in the priestly line of Levi, this is going to be the one whom God raises up to deliver his people and to bring the law to them. And God has protected him and has brought him back into the care of his mother. Now in those days, when you're talking about raising and nursing a child, they would do it, apparently according to historians, they'd probably do that for three to four years. It wasn't like 12 months and then get on formula or solids, all that sort of stuff. They would nurse a child for three to four years. And you'll wonder, that's got to be difficult for the mum knowing there's going to come a time where that child has to get handed back to Pharaoh's daughter. You're bonding so strongly over all of those years. Do you reckon she ever feared that? Do you think she ever got scared, thinking, am I going to have to hand this back? What happens if she changes her mind? What if she gets persuaded by what her dad has to say? My guess, probably not. Moses' parents know their God. They've seen his provision so far and every step along the way, they've got no reason to doubt that he'll continue to care for this child. Matter of fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews, even before they'd tangibly seen the hand of God in caring for this child, even still it says that, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was so beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Like even beforehand, They weren't scared of it because they knew who they belonged to. On the other hand, you think, I wonder how Pharaoh's daughter's coping with this. I mean, there's one thing that she's disobeyed her father, but it's more than just disobeying her father. Remember why the, the Pharaoh says he wanted the male children killed? Is he thought it was in the interest of national security. He thought, I don't want any men growing up from the Hebrew, from the Hebrew people because I'm scared that they're going to rise up and fight against us. So there's more than just working and being a rebellion against a father who's the king, but he would perceive that as actually being an act against their own people. Now eventually that time comes, presumably three to four years, the scriptures don't say that, but if going to according to normal customs, and Jochebed hands back Moses into the care of Pharaoh's daughter. When she grew older, or he grew older, Moses that is, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Just to the same extent that this mother was perfectly confident that she could place a child in a basket on the Nile that God would provide and protect this child, 
So now she has equal confidence that even this child can go into to Pharaoh's own household and that God would look after him. Moses is officially recognised as being a son of Pharaoh's daughter and it's she who gives him the name Moses. And being of Egyptian descent, most likely the name was of Egyptian origin, which is used in terms of various different Egyptian names which would mean provided by or given by, and they insert the name of their gods afterwards. Probably that, that sense to which he's saying that I'm calling him Moses because this is that one that God has provided for me as I found him as I drew him up out of the water. But then there's the other perspective. Some will say, well, maybe it's a Hebrew name because the word does mean to, be, to draw out, both of which could indeed be the origin of that word. Not a big important thing. But what is important is that the king has been plotting against God's people. He's been trying to hinder their growth. He's been trying to hinder them from being fruitful and growing and fulfilling the promises of God. But how does that work out? God can even raise up and work through Pharaoh's own flesh and blood to protect and raise up a deliverer for his people. Now we've labelled Exodus the gospel of the Old Testament because it is absolutely loaded with God's gracious acts of deliverance. Exodus 2 is no exception. Yes, there's the obvious delivering of Moses against all odds in such a miraculous way to provide and save him from what was the natural consequences under the the Pharaoh of Egypt. But there's also an extent to which it looks back to God's previous saving act and also looks forward to God's ultimate saving act through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now some of these, some of these connections both forward and backwards are obvious and some of them not so obvious. For example, there's one detail I didn't mention in verse 3. Oops, I skipped a bit. Says when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it in the reeds by the river bank. Now this word that we have basket here in our English Bible, the only other place that is found in the other parts of the Bible is in reference to Noah and his ark. And I think Moses is trying to make an actual connection between those two things. To look back, to think back about this of a time, of another time when God put people of his, that he was delivering and saving into an ark, into the water that would be the destruction for many others. That's what happened to Noah and his family. They were in the ark and on the same waters they were in the ark where they were protected, others were destroyed. Now in this setting is Moses who was placed into a basket or same word ark into the very same waters that were destined for the destruction for many other boys. So there's a sense in which Exodus chapter 2 looks back to God's saving work previously done through Noah but it also looks ahead. Noah... Moses is this one who ends up being raised up, who again will take the whole nation through the waters of the Red Sea, which will be God's means of deliverance, but that same waters will also be the means of destruction for the Egyptians who are following behind. But when you look back to Moses, 
It was God's plan to save Moses by having him put in the basket in the Nile River. But from a human perspective, that would have looked like the stupidest thing to do. Think about it. If this is the place appointed for Hebrew boys to be drowned, that would seem to be the dumbest place to place them. God's ways are not our ways. It would seem to the human eye to place a child in the Nile was like giving up the ultimate sign of defeat, saying, no, we give up, you have him. But it was God's means of salvation. Likewise, when Jesus spoke of his death to his own closest followers, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, no, you're not going to die. Death's defeat, death is loss. Death is is given up. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is taught regularly, he must die and be raised on the third day. It's part of his eternal plan. It's part of, it is the means of salvation. He had to die a death because all of mankind has inherited sin nature. That is, by nature, even though we're all created in the image of God, he has created us, he's given us our life and our breath and everything. We are Everything we have to him, he's our rightful rule to whom we belong, yet we've all decided, no, I don't want him. I'm going to live my own way. We've rebelled against him, that's what sin is. And the natural consequences of that was death. It's such as the love of God to, to rescue and to save that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die that death so that we don't have to. He bore our punishment. Death was the punishment for sin. Either we take it ourselves or we graciously give thanks for the fact that Jesus has paid that price for us, that if we repent, that is to be sorry for our rebellion against him, but not just sorry as in I feel bad, but if we're sorry that we haven't honoured him rightly as our royal king to whom we belong, who's given us our life and breath and everything, that if we're sorry, then we're going to want to live in right standing with him. To live with him as our ultimate ruler. This is the only hope for all humanity. Every single one of us were headed for destruction. Whereas Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. Jesus' death on the cross to the world looked like defeat. Looked like the ultimate loss. Just like putting a child in a basket in the Nile seemed like the silliest, defeatist thing to do. But it was God's provision of salvation. Now, I remember chatting with someone who was involved in various different evangelism outreach events and they had this very interesting approach one time. There was a new age festival and they decided we're going to set up a stall and they'll have a big sign out the front saying, your fortune's told, guaranteed results free. You can imagine they, they, they accumulated quite a number of people. Now, what they did, and they would have had 100% guaranteed results, people would come to them. And they would remind them that they've been created in the image of God, that they belong to God, God has given them their life, their breath and everything, yet they've rebelled against him and they are separated from him and the life that he has because of their sin. 
and to remind them what Jesus has done to pay the price for that sin and that if you are trusting in him and what he has done, then I can guarantee your future will be in eternity with him. But if not, you remain under his wrath and your future will be will be eternity of suffering. Now, I don't, I'm not sure how much of a fan I am of, of that particular method, but it's true that when they said your future is told 100% guarantee, they're right. There is a certainty, there's no doubt about that. There's only two, two paths for every single one of us. You either trust that Jesus paid the price for your sin and you turn and trust in his acts or you face the consequences for your own sin. Or it's put this way in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Now Moses' mother, when she placed that child in a basket in the Nile River, she did so trusting somehow, not knowing how, God would provide for that child. She, would, she didn't put a child there in a basket and get Miriam to watch on to see, thinking that child's going to die and, and watch that as some cruel, vindictive way. No loving parent could, could willingly put their child in that nature of way of harm. But in that same sense, we live amongst a whole lot of people whose eternal destiny is far worse than that. And if we have a genuine, deep-seated love and a heart and care for them... We should want to proclaim to them the good news. We should want to show them what Jesus has done to provide that rescue. Now, it should cause us deep grief. It should bring us to tears. Sometimes we are so caught up with our reputation of what will people think? What will people think of me? What will happen to these people? And we're worried about what people think about me while I go enjoy an eternity with Jesus. And I would encourage you and I would encourage myself to be bold, to pray that God would give you an openness to see the true spiritual condition of those who are around us. And I guarantee you that won't be a happy, good feeling. It'll be a sad thing. But if it causes us to reach out in love, to show them what Jesus has done, then that's a wonderful thing. I want God to stir in that way in my life. So often I'm so inactive in this area. If I believe this is true, if I believe God has provided salvation, why would I keep that to myself? Why would any of us keep it to ourselves? Just as the Moses' mother could trust what seemed like an absolutely ridiculous thing, putting a child in a basket in the Nile. We're told the gospel is the good news of God for salvation for many. That is the gospel that you and I have. It might seem stupid to tell it to someone. You think, no, not that person. And I'm not guaranteeing just because you share the gospel, people are going to, to respond. But I do want you to have a confidence that this is the message of the gospel that is the very power of God for salvation. Do not be ashamed to make it known. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are by nature a saving God. Even right from the very fall of Adam and Eve, you show us a glimpse of your plan and of your eternal plan of salvation. 
But it wasn't even a plan that came into being after Adam and Eve's sin. We're told in Ephesians 1.4 that we were predestined to him, chosen before the foundation of the world. Lord, we were all once people who were naturally headed towards destruction by nature, children of wrath. And by nothing more than your grace and the transforming power of the gospel have we entered into a relationship with the living God. Do we have confidence both in this life but also for life eternal? It's the same gospel uh, that changed our lives. It's the same gospel that we hold forth to other people as well. Grant us a confidence in your message and give us a burden for your people that you have in this city and abroad. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.